This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalife. Second time's a charm. Kieran Matthew, what's going on, buddy? <laughs> How are you doing, George? Good, man. It's good to have you on again. For people who don't know, we recorded the, the podcast the first time, and this is part of the process, but Kieran's a good friend, and he's been patient with me as, as we both figure out how to make this uh, good quality for everyone listening. Um, we were slightly talking about, I guess, the pandemic, how you've been transitioned. So personally, it seems like you've been doing well. What was the major transition from being a founder and CEO of a startup that, if people don't know, it's Amplify, which is, in my opinion, honestly, right now leading the wave of helping brands, big corps, Fortune 500 companies understand how to market to Gen Zers, uh, to the student market. Uh, otherwise, you know, they wouldn't necessarily have a voice that they would understand. And Kieran's, you know, leading that forefront, working with some of the biggest clients, Nestle, Pepsi, L'Oreal, Unilever. Um, so being in charge and at the helm of that, what for you was the major transition in the beginning? Absolutely. So, I mean, about 40% of our business is experiential marketing and virtually no experiential marketing is actually possible right now as a result of the inability to kind of have any on-foot presence uh, in pretty much any city in Canada, as well as most cities in the U.S., although there are some exceptions. And um, now even Vancouver, Manitoba, and, uh, and other markets here are gradually reopening. But that was a big shock for us, given we had a ton planned in the spring. Uh, that's a great time to be engaging youth as they wrap up school. It's a high-energy time. And as they move into the summer, their buying power typically increases as well because their capacity frees up to actually take on part-time or full-time work. So that's one of our favorite times to be marketing to, to that segment. Um, but we had to reevaluate things very quickly as it was basically the span of a week when things turned from pretty much normal to no ability to actually get on campus or to be on foot at an event and to engage youth. So we sort of quickly transitioned into doing more research just to understand what the consumer mindset was in this segment right now, given no one has experienced this before, but in particular, youth are having a challenging time. Uh, they are really missing out on social engagement. Many have missed kind of key events for their upbringing, such as prom um, or other graduation ceremonies. And then even kind of sports and, and other events that are essential or really important milestones for, for youth as they kind of enter in their final semester of school are now gone. So we knew they were having a tough transition, but we wanted to figure out what the key problems were, um, how they were faring kind of mentally, physically, and how they were also kind of faring with just being stuck at home with, with their family, which is, is challenging when they're not used to spending that much time in close quarters with uh, with loved ones. So mm. we, we did a lot of research. Uh, we had some really fascinating learnings. This crisis seems to be more of a kind of accelerant than uh, a change maker in the sense that these consumers are very future focused. They're very concerned about their finances, employment, et cetera. And this crisis is amplifying those concerns. Um, but they're also susceptible to kind of mental health challenges, including and, and predominantly anxiety and depression. And those have been um, increasing reasonably significantly during this period at about 17 and 22% respectively. So it's a challenging time for them. Um, and we learned that, but we also learned that 
these consumers are actually using this time to upskill over 75% are doing mm-hmm. so, so that they can make themselves more employable or equip themselves to start a side hustle. And it's also uh, increasing their interest in getting involved in their communities to actually make a positive impact. And that's a result of their kind of inability to actually um, largely support this crisis and help achieve some sort of resolution. So those were kind of the key learnings when we dove deep in the research. And then we also did some more kind of client specific questions, which uh, were helpful for everybody. But um, that was the first step was seeing what was happening, getting deeper consumer understanding, having that consumer understanding informed strategy, and then leaning more so on the digital side of things, which I mean, simply makes sense given there's not so much you can actually do aside from digital right now. Uh, but it's also a great time to be investing in kind of CSR corporate social responsibility initiatives because nobody more than youth wants uh, brands to actually make an impact, a positive impact for their employees and the community at large right now. So at high level, those were kind of our key learnings and uh, how we pivoted early on. How are you doing a lot of that research? Like in terms of, I hear you say, you know, when, when we talked uh, to them, this is kind of what we learned. Just curious, like what are those methodologies to reaching that student base or Gen Zers or millennials? And how do you make that engage, engaging enough for them to actually give you a true response? Yeah, great question. So we've built a panel of kind of Gen Z uh, students across Canada. It's taken a few years to build out, but we have thousands on board now that we can basically send out surveys to get quick responses and leverage that data as desired. In order to incentivize those responses, we typically offer some sort of compensation, which could look like um, brand samples from a client or actually just simply paying them for uh, their time. Uh, It could look like contests. In this case, we did something kind of creative where we offered them a gift card or uh, they were actually able to make a donation to uh, a local food bank. So we were basically making the donation to a local food bank on their behalf. So we we find different incentives depending on the length of the survey and and the need um, just to make sure that they actually fill out the survey thoughtfully. And then we also just leverage kind of classic survey technology to ensure that we're limiting or eliminating, I should say, fraudulent responses or responses in which it's evident that somebody kind of clicked through aimlessly in, in 10 seconds and didn't actually read the question. So that's a little bit uh, about kind of how we go about the research. Nice. How, how would you say, like, in, in terms of, I mean, you, you've worked with even some of the biggest banks like RBC, I know you, you've worked with Molson, Popeyes, Lyft, all these these different brands. And I think each of them have their different challenges, especially when marketing Right. But I think uh, on the cusp, if you look at kind of a, as a generalization, mostly mostly you would find that trust, credibility, these things, uh, I think, matter to a lot of Gen Zers, millennials. Uh, but at the same time, like there's so much noise out there, dude. Like if you open Instagram right now, if you open LinkedIn, you're flooded with you know, webinars, emails, newsletters, campaigns, someone asking you for something, something you need from someone like it's, it's just it's complete bombardment of 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 noise. Um, even though we're in quarantine, right? So how how do you how do you constantly pivot and and maybe break through the noise to reach people in, in a material way where they actually execute on what you're asking them to do? Absolutely, yeah. So that's a great question and something that we've had to work around since inception. That was sort of 
what guided the start of this business is that as a student, I was studying at Western University, which is about two hours away from Toronto. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I was totally misunderstood by brands because I was seeing very saturated kind of conversion centric messaging in August and September surrounding back to school. Uh, And I was also seeing a lot of brands come to campus and pretty much stand under a tent or behind a booth with a branded tablecloth waiting for students to engage them with outsider representatives, um, crappy pens and, and stickers and thinking that would be an engaging experience. So I was definitely feeling the effects of the noise and of ultimately experiencing what I would call marketing fatigue and a lack of brand trust. So I wanted to validate whether others were experiencing that. Then I, as a student, I basically began actually surveying other students to understand what was happening, quickly validated that there was a lack of brand trust, um, but also that students had really unique opportunities and ideas as to how they felt um, brands can more effectively communicate and market to their peers. So I was starting to leverage those ideas to reach out to brands saying, I'm a student, I talked to this many students, here's what we learned, and subsequently, here's how we think you can improve your marketing efforts. So that guiding principle of kind of peer-to-peer or student-centric insights or consumer insights, I should say, um, to guide strategic direction is something which is still driving our business to this day. Um, One of the things we've noticed in this segment to be particularly effective is more intimate experiences and more intimate ultimately kind of micro influencer, for example, communication. So instead of being a a big brand and launching a virtual prom right now, for example, and getting some neat artists or influencers to be get involved and sharing it out, we're focused on creating more intimate experiences that enable close peer groups to actually get together, for example, five or 10 friends on a house party and find a way to introduce Um, brands in that conversation versus trying to appeal to the masses and we've noticed that when it's a micro influencer or when it's an influential student in a more niche community communicating with their peers that engagement is much higher retention of information is much higher but that their peers actually find it interesting and want to listen because when you think about it if you consider a larger scale influencer probably every four or five posts, there's an advertisement. And at some point, not all of their following and depending on who the person is, um, it it differs from the individual to the individual, but a decent portion of their following will begin to tune out because they realize that this person is just Joe Schmo who's willing to kind of promote any product or service. Um, That's just kind of a generalization, but Mm -hmm. it it is a problem. Uh, In contrast, in the micro-influencer space and in the space that we particularly operate in, we're partnering with students which really believe in our client's brand. So we actually have a process to ensure that the people we're partnering with are already brand advocates. So we're not necessarily, we don't see it as influencer marketing. We see it as kind of digital brand advocacy and building um, very local uh, and peer-to-peer communication from people that really believe in, in what our clients are doing. Uh, And ultimately, that creates more excitement from their peers because in many cases, it's a unique brand deal, but it's also their first. Um, So if I was to land my first brand deal today and telling kind of launched it on Instagram, for example, or launched on TikTok, 
there's a good chance that my peers would reach out and say, this is super cool. How did this happen? Uh, and they would actually listen because it's unique versus kind of like you mentioned, just getting, getting lost in the noise. So that's the most effective way we've seen cutting through is just focusing, focusing on uh, intimate experiences and more localized kind of micro-influencer communication. But also that can be supported by larger kind of mass messaging or larger scale influencer partnerships because it's not kind of here or there. It's usually a, a balance of, of the two, which is going to be most impactful. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, man, especially around the micro influence and, and kind of getting your first whatever sponsorship or whatever it is. I remember uh, Ben Sherman, which is a, a retailer, I think uh, out of the UK originally, but they're, they're in Canada as well. I ended up posting a picture. They reached out. They're like, hey, we're doing like a campaign for March. Uh, would be great to have you involved. And, and to your point, like I resonated a lot with what you were saying, because when I did post that, a lot of people reached out and were like, hey, man, that's that's really cool. Um, and it wasn't anything big. And, and they knew I didn't have a massive following. But I think there actually is something to that in terms of that micro-influence. Because I think Gary Vee talks about this as well as like, if you can, and Tim Ferriss, you know, selling to a thousand people as an example, who are like arm's length, um, is sometimes more effective than having a million followers. But, you know, 99% of them you don't even know or never connected with, never talked to. So that's a very interesting point to make. And I mean, I think there's definitely examples of of larger scale celebrity-like personalities which have that influence as well. I mean, a good example from this week would be looking at Joe Rogan's deal with Spotify, which is um, supposedly worth over $100 million. And that's a function of him really appealing to a specific group of people and that specific group of people being highly engaged so when he is actually promoting a product or a service they really do listen a similar that's very similar with tim ferris who um shares that he takes time to actually vet um those products he sponsors and more than often there'll be a product that he's used before so he's able to kind of relay his personal experience so there's a lot more trust when those people are relaying messaging than when um, an influencer with the 100k or 200k followers is and evidently or or reasonably obviously hasn't actually used that product before um, sharing it on on social so there's certainly exceptions on kind of the larger scale influencer side or celebrity side uh, and I think that's sort of a, a function of the depth uh, of their audience uh, versus the kind of volume if that makes sense so contrasting the number of followers versus um, the actual state of the audience uh, and realizing that there's more of a community and that the actual following of those people um, or the people as a whole are similar or, or kind of aligned with each other from a value standpoint. And that's something that you would find in Joe Rogan's audience, but that's something you also would find in Tim Ferriss's audience. And uh, when it comes to, to Ferris, you would kind of think of his audience as people that are go-getters. Um, they're very interested in personal and professional development. Um, many probably are interested in mindfulness as that's a large sort of subject of conversation in, in his realm. So it's the values of those people uh, and the alignment of those people, which I believe Tim really understands. And that's how he's able to really make an impact with the uh, messaging he's transmitting in contrast to um, let's kind of say a a typical really pretty male or female influencer, um, which will have 
they they won't that audience won't have kind of the same depth of, of understanding or commonalities um and subsequently the community that that those others have yeah it's so true like there really is some some stickiness to what you're saying especially and i was going to bring up joe's uh joe, joe's podcast as an example because that's really from a from a user perspective that's kind of what i feel as well like when he promotes something and that wasn't always the case if you look at his older podcast he would actually advertise in the beginning and people hated that for like the first 10 15 minutes he would just like kind of like what ben shapiro does um although he does it like every 20 minutes but uh that's for a different topic uh but what's interesting with joe is like at least from now from now moving forward is he really not only embodies the products he really uses them you can see that he uses them like an example is a groove rings right like those rings he he wears and he wears them on almost every podcast um and and so when you see that it's not necessarily pushing a product it's like look i'm benefiting from it here's what it does if you think it's cool you know here's the link to the website and i think if you if you also talk in that tonality it just it reduces the bullshit barometer because i think that's something that students and and our generation is a bit easier to sense right we're not as susceptible to bullshit and we can tell if you're being genuine or fake and i think i don't know i'm not speaking on behalf of everyone but personally as a consumer that's kind of what i look for you know like where where's the genuineness uh, genuine in, in, in this kind of process and i think a good indicator for larger scale influencers or celebrities um kind of in determining whether they actually have influence or just a large audience is looking at how their audience or, or community is actually interacting so for example if you were clicking on a joe rogan youtube video um, or a tim ferris youtube video you're more than likely to see a lot of interaction and thoughtful dialogue between their audience members in the comments section um on the products they promoted on the actual subject of the conversation or the interview um and potentially just on the individual themselves and i think that's a great indicator because it shows that there's actually sort of depth to, depth to the conversation um but also that people are really taking away something and wanting to learn more um and that they're driving value from it versus actually just kind of aimlessly listening to uh it while they're working out and and letting it pass by uh or aimlessly scrolling by but uh logging a view for that individual on Instagram or on another social platform so i i think that consumer interaction and um ultimately is that is a great indicator of the bonds within their community and obviously if they've built a stronger community then there's a pretty good chance that they actually have influence versus just a large audience mm Yeah, that's that's a good point as well. Um it, it's interesting too when we talk about kind of kind of the, the the changes especially in in maybe quarantine days like uh, during covid but also post covid. I don't know if you saw this but a lot of companies were kind of leveraging or piggybacking off of that name just to to market. And and in some cases it wasn't really reasonable, right? They just added, you know, uh either covid relief or they're they're doing something ancillary to what their product or service is because they think that's a form of CSR. you know towards their community i i wonder if that has an effect on on especially selling to 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 the student market even if if right now is kind of a a a down peak yeah that's a good question and i mean one of the things we saw is that a lot of brands were very quickly to release a kind of feel good intimate we're all one um video on on social or a that was kind of tiring to be honest dude sorry to cut you off i just wanted like that that's one of the things i was tired of seeing 
yeah or, or the emails like you know where we understand we're respond like exactly yeah i feel so, like i know you have to do that but like fuck <laughs> yeah i think to some degree the you have to do the the email thing these days but when it comes to those sort of tv spots or social spots that are very much repetitive in, in the sense that they're all spreading the same we are one uh let's let's come together let's help each other out message people start to call bullshit pretty quickly there only because it takes a quick google search to actually see if that brand is operating in alignment with that message uh so for example let's say i'm not going to highlight a brand just for the sake of of example rating them but um let's say xyz company releases that spot on on tv and then you google that company and you find out that they actually just furloughed 7000 employees in in a way that actually wasn't thoughtful um or or respectful then worse our gen z in particular but youth is actually the the one that will find that out and that will kind of bring that to light on social media and that's kind of where classic cancel culture sort of comes into play when they're able to see that these organizations are actually not um supporting their people or op- operating kind of a people first mentality they're just trying to capitalize on this circumstance to kind of increase uh, increase revenue uh so there, there's some brands that have done that very poorly um there's some brands that have done that very well i mean even looking at differences in laying off individuals you could take something like Right. I think it was Bird um, Scooters, which released basically like an automated message to thousands of employees, laying them off. In contrast to um, Brian Chesky and, and Airbnb, who is having a really noteworthy and thoughtful response and having to lay off several thousand employees and actually working to add value to their lives and making sure they get rehired. Um, even doing little things like letting them keep their work laptops is such a important and useful thing for these uh recently kind of unemployed um professionals because now they're able to actually use that and and not spend thousands of dollars and buy something new and, and get on the job hunt so that's crazy i, I, didn't, I didn't know that about bird though what the heck? that's that's I, I i'm 90 percent sure it was bird um i whoever whoever that company. but it, it it was one of the scooter companies for sure and it was it the recording's available online. It was basically just an automated message that said, you're laid off. Here's here's some next steps. Expect an email. And of course, it is challenging if you're a executive with thousands of employees to thoughtfully lay off people. But yeah. I mean, I do think the Airbnb example is a, a real case study in how you can do that effectively. Obviously, Brian couldn't call all however many, I think 3,000 plus employees and apologize but um he did communicate with them in a way that was personal and thoughtful well even if you record a video too right like if you just yeah. kind of what you did like if i literally just recorded what you just said listen like it's it, uh, i understand it's a frustrating time i can only imagine you know what what it's like Th- these are external circumstances it's nothing personal i wish i can talk to each and every one of you but i just want you to know like if you do it this way you know it's never going to be great but like obviously better than an automated templated message right Certainly. And then, I mean, I think the difference maker for Airbnb too was just having really tangible and, and practical um, steps to help them on their next kind of on their journey in terms of searching for employment and getting hired. I know they started their kind of talent directory on the Airbnb site. So you can look through all the employees that have been laid off and 
um, send them an email and ultimately try and hire them. So mm. those things go a long way. Uh, and I mean, even just seeing LinkedIn posts from some of the employees and, and tweets from some of the employees, it's clear that it was appreciated. But for this Gen Z market in particular, that thoughtful response is way, way more effective than Airbnb buying a TV spot right now and saying, we know you can't travel to your favorite sites and destinations. Um, we're going to be looking forward to seeing you in later in 2020 or 2021. Um, here's uh, a couple of things that we're going to be offering later on, Airbnb experiences, et cetera. So that, that obviously would not be nearly as impactful as actually just thoughtfully caring for employees. And um, interestingly, in, in serving and talking to tons and tons of um, Gen Z consumers in Canada and the U.S., it's evident that the, the chief way they want to be communicated with um, from brands right now is actually by finding out what those companies are doing for the community and their employees. So mm. that's that's part of the problem I would say right now is there's definitely value in creating a sentimental spot and um, doing something which inspires emotion, but it's way, way more effective in, in appealing to youth to actually do, do something which is going to make an impact uh, versus sort of talk. Yeah. Uh, especially for like even taglines. I remember I, I was speaking to Ron Tite. Uh, I'm not sure if you, yeah, you, you probably know him. Um, who also runs a marketing agency called Church and State. And and one of the things that really stuck with me with what he was saying, uh, he was basically saying like, listen, if, if you're a, a company that, that makes burgers, your tagline doesn't have to be like, you know, we're bringing the world together and, you know, we're making the world a better place. Like all this, you know, this this holisticness uh, that, that you have, you think you have to associate their brand. He's like, it's, it could be as simple as like, we make really freaking good burgers. You know, like it's something as simple and straightforward because that's what you actually do. And and I think doing what you say is it sounds so you know immensely logical and and, and simple, and and you'd figure that that's what people would think. But I'm wondering from from your side, talking to a lot of these brands, why do they make things so so much more complicated than they should be? It's a good question, and I definitely think that Gen Z craves that authenticity and realism way more than previous generations. So they would far prefer a burger joint to have a motto that says we make great burgers than changing the way people eat or changing the way people consume. Mm -hmm. Um, because the question is kind of, are are they actually doing that? And in many cases, it's probably, that's probably not true. Um, so I, I think that the problem stems from founders and, and executives and marketing teams with very lofty and aspirational goals as to how they want the world to be versus kind of how it actually is. Um, but also from kind of the flawed assumption that they need to change the world or that they need to have a massive impact and um, not considering the fact that maybe making burgers is actually a wonderful thing um, or maybe getting people to buy their deodorant is actually really useful because now 75,000 people in Canada are a lot less smelly than they were before. Um, or it's a really simple thing that they appreciate adding to their routine. So I think a lot of brands and marketers overthink the need to change the way the world works and make an incredible impact versus actually practically adding value to the day-to-day of consumers' lives. 
and not realizing that very simple kind of micro experiences are just as important as kind of loon shots in many respects because it's those habits and those rituals which really bring consumers a sense of normalcy um and that's i mean in, in many respects kind of what people live for and what people experience the most versus those those loon shots that are inevitably probably game changing but not necessarily realistic for for a burger brand uh, or another simple CPG company. When when you first started Amplify, uh, I'm curious to know what was the biggest brand, actually not even biggest. What what was the first brand that you signed on? Great question. Um, like the first the first let's say customer on your on your side, you you actually worked with, formerly signed, formerly took on. So. We did actually start with serving some smaller businesses. It's interesting because I basically started this company while I was a student, but I started, like I mentioned earlier, after realizing that students were kind of experiencing marketing fatigue and that brand trust was low. So before starting Amplify, I was acting as a kind of youth consultant Consultant. to some mid-market and kind of reasonably large brands. Um, but then transitioning to actually providing a more integrated service, that's when we realized that we might have to start a little bit smaller because it was easy for me as an individual, not easy, but not as challenging uh, for me as an individual to kind of join a marketing team and act as a consultant in contrast to providing an integrated marketing service, which is uh, a more complex execution task. So we did start serving some smaller businesses early on that, uh, frankly, most people wouldn't know. The larger, the first large client we signed um, was probably actually one of Unilever's brands, uh, St. Ives. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were teaming up with a couple other agencies on that, which is more than often the case when you're working with a Fortune 500 or a Fortune 1000 level brand is usually the brand marketing team and then two or or three agencies that are collaborating on it. So um, that was, that was the first really notable kind of household name that we signed. And I I am very grateful for that work because once you sign one large company and do really good work, it is a lot easier to um, sell and and win with others. So I I think that's, I mean, I think there's an important lesson into what you're saying, because that was going to be one of my questions, which is like, how did you, uh, how did you do so also being in in, in university? I mean, you were in school doing this um, and it's difficult. It's more difficult for you to walk into a fortune 500 at the time you were solo uh, saying, Hey, I'd love to help you with your marketing. They'd be like, what the, like, you know, it just, it kind of seems, and sometimes um, that could be the advice, but I feel like for, for people listening who are just starting out, it's okay to have that as a, as a, as a vision, like as, as to where you're going to go. But I think it's important to realize that from someone like you, you know, you started in, in the, the mom and pop shops, you know, the smaller companies, the, the ones that, that were more, maybe more local, the ones that you knew you could reach because it gave you one, the ability to build credibility, the ability to get more experience and then use those as case studies so that when you went into the Unilever, um, boardroom or whatever that case was and you sat on that seat like it was not only deserving but like you, you had so much to contribute to like i feel like it, it it's important for people uh kind of an, an age to to build up that process 
you know, it's kind of like take the stairs versus take the elevator. Sometimes this is more important. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I definitely think those kind of small steps are really invaluable for earlier stage businesses, whether it's a tech company or a services business uh, like the company I run. I do believe that it is advantageous to start with smaller clients, uh, especially as you're building out your platform and really understanding uh, what your business does and where the value is. Because as much as we like to think that when we launch a company, we know what the business is, it's really going to be our early customers that dictate what it becomes. And those changes are going to be very significant in the first five years, really. Um, so the, the smaller businesses give you the opportunity or, uh, SMBs as a whole give you the opportunity to, mm -hmm. I mean, respectfully work out kinks. Um, but also the fact is that if you fail with a small to medium sized business, then there's a lot more small to medium sized businesses out there that you can support. And you kind of do have to anticipate some failures early on. You can't expect everything to just go onward and upward in a linear path. Um, in contrast, if you sign a contract with a Fortune 500 and fail, there's not actually that many of them out there. I mean, it's, it's 500. So <laughs> it's, it's a, a, smaller, a smaller market for you to tap into. And the risk is a bit higher in terms of failure. Um, but you still have to embrace that and, and not kind of, you have to think about success and, and not dwell on, on failure. So that's, that's why I think it is valuable to service smaller businesses early on. But we were also very lucky that um, large brands were uh, engaged with us. And that was a function of having access to students in a very unique way um, because we had built a network of students across the country. So we actually had reasonably significant upside in terms of peer-to-peer -peer marketing opportunities and also access to campuses that others did not have um, or that others would take a significantly longer time to figure out and execute than we could. And then also data as well, just having kind of built out some research capabilities early on, we were able to get a pretty strong pulse on what was happening in this market for each client. So that could, for example, look like working with a bank and understanding how students view their finances, who's using a checking account, who's using a savings account, mm. um, who's thinking about investing early on, et cetera, and then having that data-informed strategy. So that was data that not a lot of others had, and that was data that sometimes we would actually ask a reasonable sample of students questions before we reached out, so that when we were sending a cold email to RBC, for example, uh, we would actually be able to share some things that they probably didn't know already. Um, and that would more kind of would ultimately increase our, our response rate. So, mm. yeah. And, and one of the things I did want to ask, like, how do you, how do you make this a scalable process? You know, I think, I think that the, the one challenge of, of running an, 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 maybe an agency to put it that way um, is, it, it, you're kind of the the brains, right? You're, you're. I mean, it's really you at the, at the helm, and it's not that you can't have other people around you, but really you're driving the strategy. You're the one talking to the CEOs or the marketing departments of Unilever, as an example. How do you make that not only a, a process that you can replicate, but also scalable in terms of not burning you out for every dollar of revenue that comes into the business? Yeah, that's a great question. I can't pretend that I'm an expert at this. I think other companies have done this a lot 
more effectively by empowering all of their team members to do thought leadership and to become experts in, in their own right so that when they're walking into a boardroom with a client, they don't need kind of the, the founder or the, the top dog to come in and start the conversation because they're confident and, and can really deliver. So that's something that I frankly need to improve on a little bit more because I, I mean, I've been fortunate to comment on, on Gen Z a lot in various uh, outlets, but I need to ensure that I'm passing on my learnings and that I'm also providing opportunities to team members to make those kind of, or have those learnings um, and experiences so that they feel comfortable and confident when they're going into a boardroom or on a podcast or talking to a media outlet about kind of the state of affairs in, in youth marketing. So I, I can't pretend that I have done that really effectively, but a few things that I've found to be worthwhile are, I mean, one, just taking risk early on. So um, it would be easier for me to bring a team member on and micromanage them for the first year. But in contrast, I like to kind of give them that uh, authority to work with clients one-on-one -on -one early um, to make mistakes and to ultimately learn a ton um, because those are people that I trust. And ultimately, they're people that if, if we brought them on board, then they're very capable and bright individuals. And sometimes they just need to kind of step out of that comfort zone uh, and into new circumstances, which will be challenging, but high learning to, to grow. And that's one case when the clients become more comfortable working with that individual than me because they've established a relationship. So right. that's one thing. The second thing is just communicating early on with clients that I'm not going to be able to manage the entire process from strategy to execution. So more than often with clients, um, which might be a flaw, is I, I'm kind of guiding strategy with the team early on, and then I'm delegating to kind of the equivalent of an account manager who will take it from there. So in theory, I should be building a better system to have other team members lead that sales process and then that strategy process, because that would be much more scalable if we could train them and enable them to deliver on that. It is something I'm working on, but um, it does take time. I mean, we're still about nearing four years into this business. So it's not um, super early, but it is still early. Uh, so that's that's one thing. But I guess lastly, an extract, extrapolating on that point is that I'm pretty decent at, at driving strategy for these brands, but a lot of my team members are much better and much more organizationally inclined when it comes to managing the execution process. So that's something I'm working on kind of transparently communicating with clients is saying, I'll be there for strategy. Um, I'll make sure that we have a great execution plan, but then just letting them know that I'm actually not the best person to be working with you on this when it comes to execution, because I'm more of a high level thinker. And there's a lot of people on my team that are much more organized and better at getting in the weeds uh, and better at attention to detail, which is going to ensure that this process is seamless and, and fun for you as well. So I, I found that to be a very effective way of letting them know that they're really in good hands, but also to empower those team members, um, just speaking to their upside and letting them know that although I, I started the business, there's a lot of things that they're much better at and in, in many ways, they're much smarter than me too. Uh, that's why they're on the team. So 
I, uh, those are a few things I kind of think about, uh, and it is an evolving, an evolving process given it's, it's not uh, foolproof yet. Love it, man. And, and maybe just to wrap this up, um, I, I, I want you to leave the audience with typically I ask for advice, but in your case, curious to know, like, was there, was there a course, a book that really left an impression, uh, maybe in university days or even today, uh, th- that really inspired you and, and kind of crafted that mindset about youth marketing? Um, good question. So I, I have read a lot of business books. I, I personally am kind of big on the, the mindfulness thing and, and meditate quite frequently. And I found that that actually has inspired greater creativity than, than most business books I've read. Um, but to answer the question effectively, uh, I'm just thinking about business books, which have kind of made the most impact. I mean, it, it, I, I think it could be mindfulness ones too, by the way, this is like prefer biographies to kind of tactical books. I mean, shoe dog, for example, or, um, Bob Iger's book recently, uh, were were incredible because I just find that enables you to kind of step into that entrepreneur's shoes and understand their thinking processes and really understand the journey, uh, which ultimately for me is a lot more tactical than reading about effective ways to engage youth. Because even from four years ago to now, the mediums for engagement and how youth want to be communicated with has, has changed quite a lot. Yeah. Um, so I, I can't say there's kind of a, a marketing book. Uh, maybe this is marketing from Seth Godin, which is a little bit more recent, um, but not really many marketing books that really sparked that creative spirit. Um, but definitely biographies like Shoe Dog um, would be one, and then tons of other um, books. One of my favorites is Autobiography of, of a Yogi, which is about um, someone named Yogananda who basically brought meditation to the west and his life journey was was pretty inspiring for me but that's kind of a book that enables me to step back and realize that we're kind of on this spinning spinning disc which has been around for 4.5 billion years and in an incredible and incomprehensibly large vast universe so uh, I think those thoughts and that that kind of um, literature really enables me to step back and realize that what I'm doing in many respects is insignificant, um, but that it's, that's totally fine. Uh, and that it's wonderful to have the opportunity to make an impact on a micro scale. Uh, and that also enables me to enjoy the process more because I kind of see the big picture. Um, and I think when you're really enjoying the process and when you're living kind of in a, a state of creativity versus uh, a state of fear or uh, a state in which you're afraid of failure, that's when best the best ideas come to light and that's when in terms of kind of marketing strategy um pretty pretty exciting things happen so those are uh, a few things i've read and that uh, have made an impact if you found this podcast useful make sure to share it out with your community and if you haven't already done so subscribe to the podcast and i'll see you next time